Looking out over the ocean, it looks something like paradise. The blue waters, a boat moored nearby. Palm trees swaying in the wind. Children splashing in the turquoise water, the white sand. But for the residents of this small island nation, tomorrow may never come. This little island, Kiribati, is slowly drowning in the Pacific Ocean. The elevation of this island is on average a mere 1.8 meters above sea level. That's only about six feet. The prediction is that this small island may not survive the century. The country may be one of the first to literally disappear due to climate change. And over 100,000 residents will be the first refugees of climate. The ironic part is that this poor nation has contributed little to global emissions. This is a place where leprosy and tuberculosis are still major problems. Births are not celebrated. Rather, it's the first birthday that's a big deal, as infant mortality is so high. Kiribati is not alone. It seems like many times it's the poor that are bearing the brunt of climate change. Places like Bangladesh, Africa. Climate change even affects people of race disproportionately. Why is this? And what can we do about it? This is Spark Dialogue Podcasts. You can find us at sparkdialogue.com, on Facebook and Twitter, or wherever you find your podcasts. Spark Dialogue tells the stories of science and technology and how they relate to culture, philosophy, ethics, and the future. I'm your host, Elizabeth Fernandez. I want to say a special thank you to all the people who are supporting this podcast on Patreon. The supporters of this podcast this week can find some interesting material that can help you make a difference with the problems we're talking about today. We'll also have some educational materials for children and for people that need to learn more about climate change and how it is affecting people. You can find this at patreon.com sparkdialogue. And if you're not a patron and you want to become one, you can join by going to the website at sparkdialogue.com or the Patreon page at patreon.com sparkdialogue. Thank you, everyone, for your support and for your help to keep this podcast operational. Hi, my name is Reverend Dr. Gregory I. Simpson. I am the pastor at New Rochon Presbyterian Church, also a Sinai and Synapse uh, fellow and the co-founder of Learning for Life Solutions, a customized education consulting firm. Another island in the South Pacific is Tuvalu. It's a small country in Polynesia. This is a, a very small country close to New Zealand that had uh, issues of sea level rise. And when I say small, I mean really small. The total area is only about 10 square miles. It's made of a picturesque ring of thin islands barely sticking out of the sea. In an art exhibit before the Pacific Islands Forum held in 2019, children greeted delegates while partially submerged in the water. Their island is disappearing. The Prime Minister made a very public declaration to the United Nations about what sea level rise was doing to that nation. And, you know, the outcry, the, the, the pleading that he was making about this issue Imagine that climate change is so evident where you live. You can see the sea rise. The waters cover things that you used to know and things that you loved. The indigenous people performed a ritual where they buried certain things as a result of the birth at various points. And that all of these um, sacred symbols of the birth of several people 
were buried there. And what has happened over time as a result of sea level rise was that area, that sacred area, became flooded. Now, what that does to an individual, you can just imagine if that sacredness of space is so important to their own identity and their culture. You can imagine how that shifts their entire understanding of themselves and the world around them. These issues of climate, climate change, sea level rise, environmental toxicants, environmental racism, issues where people's lives and livelihoods are affected, also affect their culture, also affect their ethnicity, also affect just the way they interact within the context of community. And that, that is something that we, you know, people who can have influence in these discussions need to step in and make comments and make make it clear that it's not just about the science and the economics and the policies. It's also about people's culture and ethnicity and communities. A world away sits the islands of the Caribbean, a different sea, yet they face the same problems. Gregory is from Jamaica. Jamaica is a much larger island, and while it may not disappear within a few decades, storms and erosion are major problems for its inhabitants. So the coastal areas are being eroded. We know this, that's been happening for decades. The accumulation of waste and refuge on the on the beaches is obvious and very, very prevalent. Concerns about disposal of wastes continue to be a concern. And of course, on the level of, uh, within the context of the land itself, the environmental contaminants that are present are even that much more uh, of concern. He has seen firsthand how climate change is viewed in the Caribbean. Even in a place where climate change is evident, it's still not widely understood. And the problem? Education. One of the bigger challenges is that how the general population is educated around issues of environment, around issues of ecology, around issues of preservation, is very, very different than what other countries, particularly in Europe and Canada and in the United States, are accustomed to. And that that makes it a little bit more difficult to implement strategies and implement programs that can alleviate the problems. Now, it doesn't mean that on a policy level, uh, the governments don't do anything because they do a lot. But the challenge is, is that implementation becomes a little bit more tricky as you get down into the community at the community level. And that's one of the bigger differences that I see between what happens in other countries around the world as compared to what is happening in the United States around climate change in the country issues, you know, what what it means now, particularly around issues of what, what is environmental racism? You know, why do you have fracking? Why do you have oil extraction? There's a public debate and a discourse, and people choose sides. Well, in other countries, that's not the choice of a side is not as relevant 
in the process of uh, making change. And that, that I find to be problematic. Let's take an example, waste disposal. While it doesn't directly relate to climate change, it's an important thing to understand in an environmental way. When I lived there growing up, and as a, a young professional, one of the bigger issues was just how do people dispose of wastes in their environment? Simply transmission fluid from a motor vehicle was thrown in, you know, some ditch. Well, when you start to think about the multiplier effect of the types of compounds, the aromatic compounds that don't deteriorate, don't degrade, but stay and accumulate in the environment, then bioaccumulate in the flora and fauna, and then become ingested and get some way into the food cycle, then you start to see the problems as it relates to issues of health. The connection between throwing something in a ditch and a health outcome is not a, a clear shot. It's not something that you can see in a linear way. It's a very, it takes a process of understanding what is taking place to get to, from dumping to health issues. This is cause and effect. Whether it's dumping motor oil into a stream or the sea level rising, cause and effect is something that is critical to be understood in all of science, and particularly with environmentalism and climate change. And this is kind of where I see the challenge. The challenge is making those connections. And how I see that challenge rectified is by having more and more people have a, having a better understanding of this relationship between the science, their environment, their body, you know, what they are doing on a day-to-day basis, their ethnicity, their culture, their norms, and their behaviors. That's, that is a driver for understanding these relationships that seem to be desperately apart, but are so intricately interwoven with each other. So I think a big, big piece is just um, comfort with the science that's involved. Um, the media has a role to play, clearly as in, is in, in any kind of public discourse. The media's how the media portrays the issues, uh, the, the urgency or lack thereof is very much dependent on public discourse that is taking place. The concern I have for countries like uh, Jamaica and for countries in the Caribbean or countries classified broadly as being third world is how we engage aspects of science and technology. I think this is a huge area, and it's not—it's not good enough to just say, "Well, okay, um, you know, we can import the science and technology and make changes." You know, it doesn't work that simply. A deeper understanding of how technologies play into the narrative of ch- climate change, uh, large-scale production-type technologies, and small-scale things like uh, removing of waste and where waste goes, for example. These kind of straddle the challenges that countries um, that don't have a very strong science and technology infrastructure to begin with have to wrestle with. 
Understanding dumping motor oil into a river is easy. But let's be fair, the science behind climate change is not so easy to understand. It's an incredibly complex system of interconnected parts. That's part of the reason that still to this day, so many people deny climate change. Fundamental to, to any policy or economic transition change is a clear understanding of why you're doing what you're doing and how it affects the community that you're trying to create or build. Climate change is one of those issues that touches on every aspect of our humanity, every aspect of our lived or living environment. We would say sentient and non-sentient. In other words, you know, just every aspect of our community is affected by it. And so having that as a background, having an understanding of what that means in terms of not only the science, but also the cultures that we're talking about is something that has to be taught. It has to be shared. It has to be communicated. It has to be learned. And the only way we do that or the way we generally do that is by we either communicate it within very small clusters within the context of a a closed environment or ethnic group, or we disseminate it through public and private school systems. So when I, when I put it that way, I'm talking about, for example, homeschooling as a part, as opposed to private or public schooling. So we have these mechanisms by which information is communicated and how children are taught to understand the relationships between their environment, their own being, and the broader society. And those things are absolutely essential that there is sensitization from the perspective of the teacher, whoever that individual is, whether it's a caregiver or a formal teacher, that there's an understanding of these very complex dynamics and relationships that provide avenues for for change. Built into that very, very deeply is the practice, you I guess you could say, of the scientific disciplines, you know, math, chemistry, biology, physics. How do these things roll into or play into an understanding of what's going on in the environment? Well, it's fundamental to understand, you know, the food tree or the food web, the differences between the two, why there's connectivity between an ant and a butterfly and a frog and a fox and a how is that related to how we interact with these different organisms that are, that surround us and then you step into areas of policy and policy change where people's livelihoods become dependent on the environment that they live in so for example if an environment in upstate new york where i am is looking at issues of fracking in their environment, it behoves those in schools to start talking and teaching about the good and the not so good about fracking and fracking technology. It's good to understand about what, you know, greenhouse gases are. What what does that mean in terms of molecules? How does that how is it that these molecules, carbon dioxide, get to a certain point in the atmosphere and they can go no further. Why is that 
truth? What is the chemistry behind that? What is the physics that's involved? These become fundamental questions to understand both at a small, intimate level to to the very large global scales in which the transformations have greater significance in terms of weather patterns, for example. Um, that's, that is the connection between the significance of education and relationships to this issue of climate change that we're dealing with. And sadly, climate change is also more likely to affect students and communities of color. Many times we're failing our students. Education about climate change is often not reaching them, especially for students of color. And if students never fully learn about climate change, they are not likely to see the problems in their own communities or how they can be improved. In upstate New York, or in New York in general, there is a statistic um, at the level of the high schools, where public high schools, where on average over the last 20, 30 years, there's an average failure rate of between 70 and 85% in STEM subjects. Now, where I'm coming from, that's a huge problem because the people most affected usually by issues of climate are people who are the most at risk. And in this community and in other communities in the Caribbean, for example, or, you know, countries in small countries in the islands in the South Pacific, not having an understanding and not being able to articulate the problem of sea level rise through the lens of science to people who are scientific generally in their analysis of the problem will not get you very far. Environmental racism is an issue that's not only rooted in civil rights, but it's also rooted in education rights. Understanding how and why you can't have communities housed beside facilities that burn trash, that affect the environment, pollute the air, and as a result of that, increase issues of, of asthma, increase issues of brain damage. Uh, you know, all of these are connected, but they're connected through a language that is primarily absent from those who are most disproportionately affected. And that has been, that's been my concern and my mantra that it's not that we need every person of color to become a font of knowledge in chemistry, biology, or math. But in order to at least articulate policy changes, articulate from the perspective of just civil society and, and governance, articulate what the challenges are, we need to have deeper understandings of these problems. And that comes with a knowledge not only of the civil rights at stake, but also at the scientific issues that are at the root of the problem of climate change to begin with. There is a, an uh, individual, her name is Catherine Flowers, and she is from Louisiana. Uh, she does her advocacy work down there. She looks at issues of, of waste disposal 
in the community that she serves in. She's also on the board of directors of the Climate Reality Project. She talks about the challenges of waste disposal in her community, where it is most present, the problems, where there are higher levels of of tropical diseases, where the waste disposal is least attended to. And she speaks about the quality of water in those communities. Now, these are, this, is a, this is one community. I mean, we can talk about communities, for example, in Flint, Flint, Michigan, where issues of water quality have compromised learning capability, not across the board, but in communities of color. There is a relationship between who is served uh, appropriately in a community and who is not from the perspective of the environment they live in. This is a function of zip code, and we know this. It's not, this is not new. Um, people who are poor can't, don't pay the same amount of taxes and therefore are less likely to get the types of services that will preserve life or, or increase longevity of life. Flint is probably the best or one of the best examples over the last two decades of this problem of environmental racism. It highlights what happens when some a community is subject to high concentrations of lead in their water. And that's an issue that we have to, if you don't understand what lead, lead does to your brain, then this is a non-issue. But the more you understand and the more you learn about lead toxicity, then you have to speak out. The more you know that, the, the less of an argument other people can develop, um, at least not on a, from the perspective of science. You can argue it other ways that have nothing to do with science. But from the perspective of science, you can't argue differently. The other example that I would draw on is exactly what we're faced with right now with COVID-19 and the health disparities that we've seen. In, in some communities in, I think it was Philadelphia, where the community of, of color decided that they would uh, hold a house party during, during the height of this uh, earlier in, must have been you know late March, early April. Their decision to take that opportunity to celebrate instead of staying inside was a function of their own displeasure and abject rejection of the society that they live in. They, the feeling was that because the society didn't care for them, what purpose do they have? Let's just party until everything is done. Now, I'm saying that to put another type of shell around this issue of climate and climate justice, because issues of, of health care, play into this narrative and understanding what the problems are in relation to healthcare from a scientific perspective. And we're not talking about graduate level, you know, biochemistry, molecular biology. We're talking about just understanding the basic issues of what a virus does or what a virus can't do, how a virus is spread and understanding those relationships. Then you can argue differently. 
I'm concerned that not enough people in the communities that I'm most interested, most invested in, communities of color, are not as privy to the depth of science that I believe should be available to them. Again, I always say this, you know, I have a PhD in organic chemistry. You know, I've spent, I've spent years doing research as a, as a postdoc at UMass Medical School, at MIT, at Harvard. I, so I'm not asking anybody to, to take my path. What I'm asking for and what I advocate for is that people become more comfortable with issues of science and technology as it relates to the environment that they live in. And once you can do that, then issues of collective voice become stronger. Advocacy becomes more potent. And issues that affect your community become more relevant to those who, are, who, who seek to serve and who are serving you at, at the present time. The problem in science education is multi-tiered. There's, of course, the national level and then the state level, which is tied to how much funding the schools are getting. But then there's also the level of the schools themselves, the teachers and the parents. Assuming if you're a teacher or a parent, is there anything that you can do? That's a golden ticket right there. Because what I would say first and foremost is become comfortable with community sense. How simple things of why you want to not have plastic, answering that question. Why is it that New York is considering in some places like upstate New York has banned the use of plastic bag? Why is that? Why is it that we can't fish in the Hudson River? These are issues that go to the heart of the problem of environmental contaminants. And it's not far-fetched science that Somebody says you can't eat the fish because there's too high a concentration of lead in the fish. And that is going to affect your cognitive, your ability to develop your brain. So from the level of the parent, that's the science that I would be advocating for. From the level of the teacher, this is a much more difficult issue because they are, at least in the public school system, they are bound by the requirements given to them through law and they have to do certain things and they have to achieve certain things, certain goals and markers in order for their schools to be continue to be funded. What I found when I was in Brooklyn, teaching those kids in Brooklyn, was that the teachers there were unable, for example, to complete chemistry curriculum. So they would do half of the curriculum and then stop. So the students learned half the course and then went into the exams and failed. Of course, they had to fail because they only knew half the material and not very well. So you end up with partial education, which does not lend itself to the type of information, uh, ability to guide and to lead and to discuss and to articulate the problems within the community. One example that is probably stands out in, in the Western world as amazing is Finland. Finland's education system is built on the fact that their students do not have homework. Their students spend on average about three hours or so, maybe four, 
in classes, and the rest of the time they're outside exploring the world. Now that, in one way, gives young students, young uh, people an opportunity to, to probe, to ask questions, to become creative and curious. And that in turn will, will force creativity and curiosity among parents. And that in turn will create curiosity and concerns within the teaching community. How do you get kids to understand what's going on with their environment is about getting them to understand and to be creative in their thought, just to ask questions. What I found, you know, across students in Brooklyn, in Massachusetts, and in, in the Caribbean, in Jamaica in particular, to get curiosity was a challenge to get individual students to to see themselves in the picture, to be able to ask the question, ask whatever question it is and not be told that that's a stupid question. Ask whatever question and and try and be guided on how to to solve that problem. That's a starting point of the issue between parents or caregivers and the teachers who teach these students. Gregory is part of an organization called Learning for Life. He hopes to tackle climate change starting with children, starting with their education. Our goal is to build customized education programs for kids. Our real vision and mission is to spark curiosity and to allow that curiosity to shape a learning environment that goes beyond uh, elementary and middle and high school and uh, first degree and wherever else you want to end up. It's a lifelong learning process that we strive for. And that is function. That's a function of being a creative thinker or being willing to create. So for an ex- for example, programs that we've created are in chemistry for students who are interested in uh, learning about nail polish, the chemistry of nail polish or perfumes. So the student having an interest in an area becomes the centerpiece of building the program, not the other way around. If you are willing to listen to what drives the interests of students, whether it be hip-hop, basketball, baseball, dancing, whatever it is, whatever their interests, wherever their interests lie, that's the vehicle through which curriculum needs to be built. That's not how public school systems work, but that's what we're trying to achieve at Learning for Life. No one group of people can solve climate change. It's going to take everybody people from every background, race, religion, profession, and viewpoint. That's one of the reasons it's so important that everybody understand the problem and that everyone is included. The problem of climate change is global in scope. We know this. What that means is that it's global in solution. That there's no one group of people who will be able to solve this problem. It's going to take a collective, 
collective voices, collective learning, collective understanding, collective creativity to speak to this issue. It's very hard to understand what it what are the problems that an individual in any one community can face. You can't figure that out top down. You have to figure it out from the level of community. And that in and of itself speaks volumes about why it is that we need more voices at the table to speak to these issues. Voices at every level. We need older people, we need younger people, we need in-between people, we need people of different ethnicities, of different racial orientations, gender orientation. Everybody affected by this, by climate, which is all of us, has to be at the table. Those voices need to be heard. And so it's not, for me, it's not a choice. We need to find ways to speak together in such a way that we can respect each other and also also come up with solutions and compromises that work for the whole and that are not skewed to any one group or the other. Gregory is exactly right. Climate change is a complex problem, and as such, we need people of all backgrounds, ideas, experiences, and specialties to chime in, to think, to create solutions, to play a role. Education is a huge component in that. Hopefully by giving a voice to everyone, by making sure everyone understands what is at stake, we can all come up with a solution, together. Spark Dialogue Podcast is produced by me, Elizabeth Fernandez. You can find us on the web at sparkdialogue.com, on Facebook and Twitter, or any of your podcasting platforms. Remember, if you're a patron of this podcast, to check out the bonus content at patreon.com sparkdialogue. Thanks for joining us today, and we'll see you in two weeks for another episode. Some of the background music you heard was produced by me. Others are clips from River Flute by Kevin MacLeod, Tea Roots by Kevin MacLeod, Forget Me or Not by Bo Crew, and I Don't Know, The Grapes of Wrath Mix by Spinning Merkaba. Links to these songs and more information can be found in the show notes at sparkdialogue.com.